Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the AR-15 Podcast. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking to JD and I. We're be talking about this for the AR-15, but I was just... You know, stuck in a moment of reflection there as we uh, started off, uh, thinking that it's been a while since we've gotten together. But the last time we got together, we we threw out four episodes back to back to back to back, didn't we? We did. It was kind of the uh, the gauntlet that uh, I flew out to Dallas and hung out for a weekend, and we uh, knocked out four shows back to back to back. It was uh, separated by some good barbecue, um, some dillas from uh, time. Yeah, a little range time, a little what not to do. We we haven't even talked about what our PSA is going to be today. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on that while I carry us through some of the preliminary parts of the uh, of the uh, episode. So uh, okay. I'm going to throw that in your lap. So before we get on too far with the episode, I want to remind you that uh, as we police our brass, it is our Patreon supporters that have helped us immensely these last few months with some uh, unexpected expenditures, and we really want to thank you. Um, you know, uh, we have so many of you that you know, support as you're able to, and we really appreciate you, and you know, you guys are the, the backbone of what we've got here, but you know, surprisingly enough, in the last uh, month or two, we've had a few kind of exciting one-off donations. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's not like uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, you know, telethon kind of level contributions, but uh, you guys are really, you know, kind of one-off stepping up, appreciating the product uh, that we're delivering to you. And and you know what, we we just like to thank you. I I, I appreciate that. Um, you know. Uh, I guess we should we should contact those guys, JD, and and see if it's okay if we you know drop some names. I'm kind of reluctant to do that without a little bit of an okay, because you know I really do appreciate their support, and I don't want to put anybody in a bad way. But you know, of course, we have our old you know you know iron sided standbys. The guys are with us, you know, come you know good or bad. You know, there's Tom and Jason and, you know, who else is there that's kind of at that, you know, they really love us level. We've got Steven and a couple others that are there too. And plus several, several that are out the, uh, sneak it past the wife club or sneak it past the spouse club. I think that's, I know that's the bangles level. The bangles are sealed. Our lips are sealed. We just PSA don't reference any eighties songs. And if you're going to reference an eighties song, make sure it's a good one. I like that song. I, that figures. But uh, your Patreon support, your gifts through uh, PayPal are taking care of the show and uh, really make a difference in the production quality and the things that we're able to do. Uh, we've got some big dreams, big plans to take the show different places, and uh, your support makes that happen. It also replaces, like I'm holding up to read, this is the front, this is the volume adjustment on my Yeti mic. You see that? Yeah, that's just like a old bake like knob. It's broken off at the base. Yep, it is. Uh, Can't adjust anything anymore. It uh, if I stick my finger in here and hope not to get shocked. Maybe that's the PSA. Don't think you stick your fingers in any sockets. But uh, you know, that's one thing that'll have to be replaced down the road when it goes out. And because of your guys' support, and just we're doing something that we love and come together and talk about it each week. And that's the goal to do it each week. Uh, your support makes a difference. So whether you give one time on PayPal or you sign up to do something monthly on Patreon, you can do that at ar-15podcast.com, ar-15podcast.com. And look, every amount uh, makes a difference because there's there's stuff that comes up that's like a $5 thing that we've got to buy for the show. And there's stuff that comes up that's a $400 thing that we need a new board or we need to replace some mics and cables. So everything coming together, the the listeners really showing appreciation. You guys stepping up uh, makes a huge difference. So if you want to give a, a one-time gift through PayPal or sign up for monthly uh, and help us out, if you appreciate the content that's coming on the show and all the hard work, because uh, I am hustling when we're off the air to uh, bring giveaways and other things coming in to the show and get guests on. And so it's a pretty time consuming process. So those gifts really show the appreciation there. So AR-15podcast.com. That's AR-15podcast.com. 
Well, before we get too much further, why don't you uh, give us a rundown of our, uh, uh, our main topic sponsor? Otis Technology. And uh, I got some reminders today that I've got some Otis stuff to send out. I sent out the first wave today. Uh, the rest of them, winners over the last month and a half or so, will be receiving theirs probably early next week. I got a couple shirts going off, but Otis Technology been a great sponsor of the show, uh, helping us out with product to give away. They are definitely the cleaning, um, the cleaning partner for the AR15 podcast. So thank you to Otis Technology. If you get a chance and you buy some of their stuff, make sure you say you heard about them from the AR15 podcast, and we'd appreciate that. Absolutely. So JD, it has been a little while since we've had to tell the listeners what we've been up to. Have you been up to anything exciting? I completed a rifle. <laughs> Well, why don't you tell the, the listeners about some of the, the trials and tribulations that you've Oh, man. You know what? I'd, I'd love to get in, in depth with it, but we're actually going to have a show entitled What I Learned uh, on my build. <laughs> and it'll take up the whole, like, I don't know, there's 24 hours in a day. So like, probably about 160 hours a year a week, the things that I learned, the things that I, I need to do a little bit differently the next time. But, yeah, I, I finished a rifle. It's an SBR. Um, the folks at uh, Staley Shooting Supply, where I got uh, most of the supplies for that rifle, so uh, Stephanie and her gang helping out. Um, of course, it always helps to have a reed in your back pocket to help you out when you're about ready to throw things out the second story window. Um, see, but I, yeah, we're, I thought that was what you learned, JD. You know, to have a reed. Yeah. Well, I call reed a couple times and text him, and be like, "Is this how this is supposed to go? Because this is pissing me off." Um, and so I built that and then I'm, uh, in the stages of building one of the Brownells, um, M16A1 clones and, uh, have gotten to the, I got your PSA. All right. Let's hear it. My P. Hmm. So I cheated on my, on my love here in, uh, Vegas. Um, New Frontier Armory is probably about a good 40 minute drive from my house. <laughs> and I came up short on some parts. Um, I was missing a couple of roll pins uh, for a forward assist on this bad boy and then um, for the gas tube. So I cheated on him. I'm going to have to buy him roses or something, chocolates or something, donuts um, for the guys at New Frontier Armory because I know better. Like, don't, don't, don't go away from the honey hole. Just, just don't. It's not worth it. So I went to a gun shop right down the street and uh, I told them what I needed and they looked at me all funny. Cause I'm like, I just need two roll pins and like the, the uh, forward assist spring. That's all I need. Well, you could get this in this. And I'm like, no, I just need these. So they go in the back. He finds some. He, he gives it to me in a baggie and everything and charges me way too much. But once again, <laughs> once again, I deserved it, uh, because I was in such a rush to get this thing done. So I come home. You know, I'm telling Reed about it. I'm getting the Ford Assist, the the burl pin in, and I'm I'm tapping it in with a starter, and everything's going good. And then, like, I get it just about in, and it bends. Bends in half. A roll pin. A roll pin bent in half. That's what I get for not just being patient. And uh, going up and visiting my guys at New Frontier Armory, that's what I get for going to another gun store that will remain nameless. And I will never set foot in again, but it's right down the street. It's on Durango. So no names. There are the only thing. one on Durango, but we won't name them. No, <laughs> uh, there's a couple on Durango. I just steer clear of Durango. Um you know, JD, use quality parts. In, in 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 my entire life of fiddling with firearms, never, never has a roll pin bent in half. Now I've I've gotten a starter on it or a, a, a roll pin punch on it, and I've kind of you know splayed out the end or you know warped the end or you know because I'm pounding on it with a you know, a punch, but never has one bent in the middle, in half, in the midst of it being driven. And I've, I've messed with some tight-lipped pins. Never. I'm telling you, that is amazing how junky that pen must have been. <laughs> yeah. 
I believe each time I like knocked it in with the punch a little bit, trying to get it started and trying to get it going, I believe it swore at me in Chinese. <laughs> so, oh. so I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little frustrated with it. Never again, but um, I will be making a trip up to New Frontier Armory this coming up week. And uh, we'll be pretty excited to uh, get the proper parts and maybe even a little bit of guidance and help in uh Fixing this quagmire, so to speak. There so that's the PSA. Go, don't leave your honey hole. Stay with, stay with the one that you brought to the dance that's always been faithful with you. Don't, don't, don't go to the, the gun store that's closer down the street just because you don't want to drive all the way up to North Las Vegas. What, don't do it. What's that old song? Have patience. Be patient. Oh, don't man. be in such a hurry. Well, here's what happened. I built one. I was like, ooh, I could build two. Uh, no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I need to wait another year uh, and figure it out. Well, it sounds like you've had an exciting couple of weeks, but so have I, JD. Guess what I received in the mail? Spanish Mauser? Nope. I received my Geisley model 700 trigger. Nice. Two-stage trigger for my Remington rifle. I'm in the midst of upgrading it. So I have the new trigger. I have a new stock. I'm going with the uh, Hunter stock from Magpul. You know, we need to like get on Magpul again and see when we can get those boys on. They're, they're another one of the unicorns out there. Oh, I agree. I like JD. I love Magpul. JD and I think we've also solved our telephone problem. So I think we're going to get some uh, exciting guests that uh, don't know how to use the internet. On because they know how to use their cell phones. That's going to be cool. <laughs> they're they're out there. Uh, just yeah, some of them. And plus, another thing is, is during the work day, during the work hours and stuff, it's easier for them to jump on a phone call sure, instead of sure. you know, trying to fire up and be like, yeah, it's what's not going like on? They have computers in their offices or anything, right? I mean, geez. I'm trying to play the nice guy, the PR thing, but when somebody refuses to come on the show because you're a dick, um, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do about that. They say that you're that? Oh, JD, what are you doing to these people that they say you're a dick? No, I've, they know who the salty one is on the show. That's without a doubt. I feel I like I'm getting the death stare. Man, no read, read, everybody wants me to get you liquored up and talk to you about things that will get you all fired up. That's yeah, gonna be that's it's gonna be our April Fool's show. You think we're talking about ARs, but what we're really gonna talk about is things that make Reed mad. <laughs> that's kind of a big list nowadays. <laughs> All right. Well, so I mean, I guess that's uh, that's our sit rep for the the episode. We've we've been up to a lot of stuff these last couple of weeks. You know, I guess it really pays to have some distance between episodes because then we don't rehash the same three things we've done in the last four hours no of the episode. Well, we went and got lunch. Yeah, we, we went to this, but I think we should, uh, I think we should plan another trip out, or I should plan another trip out there and that we should knock out some episodes. That was quite fun. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. So, um, I think we have another sponsor to talk about before we get into our meat and potatoes. We do. Uh, Ammo.com has teamed up with us to give you a deal on your next purchase of ammo and also help support the show. You can save $20 on your next purchase of $200 or more when you use the link ammo.com slash AR15 podcast. That's ammo.com slash AR15 podcast. You get your ammo, you get it at a deal, and you help support the show all in one by going to ammo.com slash AR15 podcast. Right. You know, we've had a, a request for this very episode for a while. And, you know, I guess in the in the spirit of me trying to deliver some quality to you guys, I've, I've kind of pushed it off until I could get some, I, I would say, reliable sources so that I could put on this um, show with JD's help and, and try to deliver some some good product. But We've, we've had people ask again and again and again for a history of the AR-15 show, you know, and, and wow, it is a great deal of information that can be crammed into, I'd say, the first decade to 15 years of its existence as a, uh, an, a 
you know, a, a, a rot being into the world. Um, and all of the kind of nuanced evolutions that went into the rifle. So in, in an effort to not give you a whole bunch of garbage, I had to find some good resources, which I think I did. Um, and so can I tell them the story? Can I tell them the story about the resource? Oh, sure. Sure. The resource walked out of the bookstore and had to go back in. What do you say? <laughs> I'm saying we were so wrapped in our conversation I forgot over to it. <laughs> we, we've, we forgot to, yeah, we've, we forgot to pay. And then we went back in and paid like upstanding citizens. Well, absolutely. Cause as soon as I looked at it in my hand, I was like, JD, I didn't pay for this. Let's go back. <laughs> and then we watched a movie. Yeah. Yeah. But that was all fine. That was all fine. But you know what? I, I tell you, you know, there, there are a lot of really, um, I guess, well-informed, educated um, enthusiasts that have a lot of good information about the rifle. But I think also there is some information that is just, I think, generally um, it's bad or poor information. It's just passed on the Internet because, you know, that's the way the Internet works these days. I'm... I'm still drawn to the idea of professional, you know, writers that go out and they research their subject and they get, you know, sources listed and vetted. And, you know, there's this whole hierarchy of how you're going to rely on a given resource and, and how much faith you'll put into the the expression of whatever it is you're trying to pass on. So, you know... The internet is full of so much garbage, and it's really sometimes hard to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. So this was my effort in trying to deliver this history to you. So I'm sure I'm going to get something wrong. And if I do, absolutely, I want to hear from you. Um, but I'm, I'm going to set the stage by saying I'm going to rely on my resources because I've done a very, I think, thorough job in trying to make sure I get good ones. Um, there is an outfit, Osprey Publishing, that has been putting out books for eons. Hundreds, hundreds of books. Oh, I mean, maybe even a thousand or more. And, and really, they cover many, many aspects of, um, military, uh, history. I mean, going back to the Greeks, the Egyptians, uh, uh, Middle East and ancient history and talking about, you know, uh, arms and armor and weapons of war and, you know, great generals and battles and, you know, the history and evolution of, you know, all of these different components from the ancient uh, times that are recorded in our history to the present day. And, you know, I've, I've been aware of these publications for years and they've always intrigued me and I've always, uh, really enjoyed reading the ones that, uh, touch on subjects that I'm partial to. But, uh, the M16 and its history is one that they have written, uh, a few publications on. Uh, there was also another source that I found that has a good bit of information on it. And, you know, I think what we may end up having is a, two episode show because there really is an enormous amount of detail that can be kind of brought out and hashed out. But, um, that's kind of the foundation. So let's get into the meat. Um, JD, where would you say that this all began? I would say it would begin probably in the early fifties with testing and what the army was looking for to probably replace the, uh, M one Garand. I'm going to redirect you from that train of thought just a little bit. So it all begins with Fairchild Engine and Airplane. It was a company that's role in World War II was to help with the aircraft side of manufacturing and production. Now, the name says it all. But here's the thing. What they were really good at was using aluminum. And making aluminum parts for aircraft. Now, post-World War II, I think really there were a great many companies that were trying to figure out how to put their knowledge base in obscure materials technology 
to good use because after that demand waned, I think there was a lot of knowledge available for other purposes. So Fairchild created an entity called Armalite. And Armalite was headed by a man named George Sullivan, uh, not to be confused with James, Leroy James Sullivan, who was one of the men that worked on the actual M16 project. But George Sullivan was the president of Armalite. His uh, plant manager was Charles Dorchester, and Eugene Stoner was the chief engineer. And the principal purpose of Armalite was to figure out if they could use aluminum and Fairchild's expertise in aluminum, um, what would you call it? Manufacturing, um, whatever we would use the aluminum for, um, to take their expertise and apply it to different industries. And so firearms was the thing that Eugene Stoner was charged with developing. Now that was 1954. And so right around the time, we're kind of a post-Korean War. Um, we've had World War II and Korea come and go, the M1 Grand and all of the kind of basic firearms of the World War II arsenal were still in use. And it was around this time that the idea of a replacement for the M1 was brought into being. And so that project was one that Armalite was trying to get on board with. The problem was is that Armalite was about two years behind in, I guess, uh, the project from all of the other competitors. And I think that there was a, I would call it a management gaffe, when they brought the AR-10 to the party and tried to have it tested against the M14 and the, the T-44, I think, was one, and the T-48 was another one. But they were, I think, poorly received because they used... Uh, a barrel that had an aluminum composite to it that blew out. And huh. so it didn't quite place the uh, AR-10. And uh, it was in 1957 that the M14 was adopted. So in my reading, this is something that came up that I thought was kind of interesting. I've heard a lot of people, and I think even one of our Facebook responders to uh, what do you want to know about the AR-15 question you put up, was talking about the M14 and how it was thought to be um, uncontrollable in full auto fire, right? Well, the interesting thing was is that as the M14 was issued to soldiers, it was generally issued with a selector lock. So it wasn't issued in a full auto configuration. It was only single fire, much like the Grand. Huh. Now, there was an attempt to make an automatic rifle version of the M14, but it was called the M15, but it was never put into production. And the M15 was an M14 that was an automatic rifle, had a heavier barrel, a bipod, and a number of other components to put it into the category of the BAR, which was one of the rifles that the M14 project, uh, project was supposed to replace. So, that's just kind of an aside. Most of our soldiers never used the M14 in full auto. So I don't think that that was ever really a consideration of any sort in terms of why a transition to the M16 was undertaken. So it's 1957. The M14 has been adopted. The AR-10, I think, was thought to have dismally failed because somebody made an error in judgment and putting the wrong kind of barrel on that rifle for its test. Um, and in 1959, the M14 was issued. But in and around this time, there was a school of thought that said, we need to be getting away from a 30 caliber projectile. And keep in mind, it was in the mid-50s that NATO had adopted the, um, what is it, the 7.62 by, oh, I want to get it right, what is it, 59, 52, whatever the, the standard 308 NATO designation is. Uh, it was adopted by NATO, and so there were a few people that were wondering why we're looking at this new, you know, lighter 22 caliber cartridge when we've just gone through all the trouble of uh, standardizing a NATO cartridge that's a 308 uh, based cartridge. And, you know, 
I think anybody that's got any familiarity with firearms can recognize that in weapons development and uh, adoption, a great deal of the undertaking is based on politics. Mm-hmm. You just can't get away from that. That's part and parcel to what it is. So the AR-10 failed dismally, and right around the time that it had failed, there had been an undertaking to get the AR-10 miniaturized. Now, Leroy James Sullivan, or Jim Sullivan, was part of uh, Eugene's team, and uh, one of the things that he was, I guess, uh, well-known for was miniaturizing firearms. Sullivan was responsible for... The Ruger Mini-14, which was a scaled-down M14. He was responsible for the Stoner 63, which was a scaled-down version of the Stoner 62. And he was also part of the team that miniaturized the AR-10, which ultimately became the AR-15, and then, after adoption, the M16. So, the project to try to miniaturize the AR-10 was put into effect, and in 1957... Stoner had taken 10 rifles out to Fort Benning to have them demonstrated. Also at the demonstration was the Winchester lightweight military rifle, which was chambered in uh, uh, 224. I'm guessing it's a 224 Winchester. And we have a picture of it in the show notes. And, you know, really it kind of looks like a hybrid of a uh, M2 carbine and a an M14. It's Really kind of a ghastly-looking beast. I'm kind of glad they went with the uh, M16. After all, but. but when uh, Stoner took the AR-15 out to Fort Benning, it was chambered in 222 Remington Special. Now, the evolution of that round brings us to the 5.56 that we're all familiar with today, but that's not where it started. It started with the 222 Remington Special. That was the cartridge the first rifles were chambered in. And so this was in 1957. Now... Armalite had had the rifle for some time, and Armalite's goal was to put it into production and get it into the market for sale. And keep in mind that at the time, the you know the firearms industry, uh, but I guess more specifically the military-industrial complex that you know everybody speaks so poorly of, which I just love and adore, um, <laughs> was more than just what could be manufactured for U.S troops. It was also what could be sold overseas to U.S. allies. And that was a much larger market than what the U.S. military was able to bring to bear with military contracts. The problem is, is that uh, that was hard to do until you had formal adoption of that firearm by our government. And here's the reason. A lot of those militaries would use money that we gave them to buy firearms. But one of the conditions of that advance of money is that they buy those firearms from U.S. military contractors. So if you're not a U.S. military contractor, you don't get access to Malaysia's markets that are fueled by American uh, military uh, support payments and have that money come back to those fine folks at Armalite. So they were really, during this entire time, trying to open the door so that they could create a market. And they weren't having the success they wanted. Um, interestingly enough, George Sullivan was a friend of, I think it's uh, General LeMay. And he was an Air Force general. And I may have that name wrong, but you can always check the facts there. <laughs> But the point is, is that um, there was a little bit of, I guess, an inside track because they had LeMay really working hard to try to get that rifle under military contract. And so in 1957, I think uh, Sullivan and LeMay went on a duck hunting trip. And it was shortly after that that LeMay tried to get the uh, AR-15 into the Air Force. Now... What ended up happening is LeMay gets in there and starts pushing hard for the rifle. In fact, he starts pushing so hard that he pisses off the army, and Kennedy tells him to back off. Now, that's a guy that's pitching for you, isn't he? So keep in mind, around this time, 
the AR-10 had gotten a little bit of traction with the Dutch. There was a license issue to a company overseas to make the AR-10. And if you're an AR-10 aficionado, you know that there, uh, I think there was a version that was, uh, there was a Dutch version, an intermediate version, and then I think there was some version that was named after a, uh, what was it, a, an African country that had adopted it. But it wasn't very widespread. You know, the problem with the rifle is that once again, you have an entire military industrial complex that's arrayed against you. Even though it was an innovative design, they just couldn't beat the systems in place. But I think that's more my opinion than anything. Um, they weren't getting any traction with the AR-10 in the U.S., and they weren't getting any traction with the AR-15 in the U.S. And so it was right around 1961, I believe that's the year, um, what ended up happening is Armalite sold the license to manufacture the rifle to Colt. Huh. Now, it wasn't an absolute sale. What um, Armalite received in exchange for that license was 4.5% of every rifle manufactured and $75,000 up front. Well, Yikes. That, may not, that may not seem like a whole lot, but I think we've got... What was it? I think it was somewhere close to six million of those rifles manufactured uh, for militaries around the world during the time that Armalite was entitled to those royalties. So that probably was not an insignificant number of uh, dollars. So how much do you think they sold each rifle for? Just ballpark? Oh, I'm not even going to speculate. I have no idea what, you know, 1960 something dollars are worth. But yes, I've confirmed it was LeMay. So in fact, here's the, here's the quote from my source. It says, LeMay's badgering of the army was so insistent that President Kennedy warned him to back off. So what ended up happening in the course of this evolution is that Kennedy was trying to get all of the militaries to come to the table with special operations group. And the Air Force was trying to put together um, units to meet that request. And uh, that was the Composite Airstrike Forces and the Air Commandos, which were redesignated Special Operations in 1968. And many of these uh, uh, Air Force uh, airmen were deployed to Southeast Asia as advisors in the early 60s. And uh, LeMay wanted 8,500 uh, AR-15s, but he didn't get them. However, they were permitted to send a 1,000 AR-15s to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam uh, because apparently the uh, BAR was ill-suited for small-statured uh, troops. And the M2, uh, which is the M2 carbine, the fully automatic version of the M1 carbine, was, uh, although light and compact, it was inadequate for jungle warfare and could not stand up to the 7.62 SKS carbine or the AK-47 assault rifle. So that kind of created the opening for the AR-15. And so in that time period, the Air Force had standardized the AR-15 as the M-16, but further procurement wasn't in the budget. And it took a little bit longer for them to get the rifle... <laughs> Adopted. And so a couple of things happened in that kind of interim. They went from a 1 and 14 inch uh, twist on the barrel to a 1 and 12 inch twist on the barrel. Um, there were some concerns about whether or not they should uh, chrome any part of the barrel, uh, the chamber. Um, and there still wasn't any widespread adoption in any of the other units. Uh, there was some thought. Um, from the Navy SEALs to get into the uh, M16. They bought 172 AR-15s for testing. And there were some reports from Vietnam that the AR-15 was the best all-around weapon and should replace the M1 rifle, the M2 carbine, the BAR, and the Thompson submachine gun uh, within the ARVN, which was the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. And so, I mean, I guess essentially the first combat use of the AR-15 was by the Vietnamese regular <laughs> and not the u.s military and it also saw action in the indonesian indonesia malaysia confrontation 
on Borneo in 1963, where it was used by the Australian SAS. So at that time, it really didn't have a whole lot of traction, but I think that you could infer that the Vietnamese troops were pleased with the rifle, and if the SAS decided to put it to use, I'm sure they must have thought well enough of it as well. I mean, I think that's pretty interesting, that this icon of American uh, manufacturing engineering... Wasn't, wasn't even used here first. No. Used by us first. No. I mean, I think that's fascinating. Um, so it required almost two years to reach the same production levels as the M14 in terms of general Colt manufacturing. But it had to have additional or comparative testing was ordered for the rifle to even be, I guess, brought up uh, by the infantry board uh, for evaluation. Um, in fact, there is a, a memo that was drafted by the infantry board that directed that when the tests were conducted, that they conduct only those tests that will reflect adversely on the AR-15 when compared to the M14. Now, that's some douchebaggery, if you ask me. I'm thinking that somebody on the uh, infantry board was close to the uh, M14 guys, the way that, you know, Curtis LeMay was close to uh, old Sullivan there. But I guess that's the way it worked back then. It was about who you knew, right? So the recommendations after the comparative testings were that they continue to use the M14 in units in Europe and units earmarked for Europe and perform a slow conversion from M1 to M14 in other areas. And the correct, the AR-15 reliability and night firing deficiencies, and that final decisions to convert to the AR-15 can be based on the experience of AR-15 equipped units. Issue the AR-15 to airborne, air mobile, and special forces units, and then issue the M14E2 automatic rifles. Those were the ones that were supposed to replace the BAR that uh, were substituted in for the m 15, because it was never brought into production, uh, that they were to be issued only the M14 equipped units, and then continued development of other advanced weapons. So it was around this time, 1962, that something called the Special Purpose Individual Weapon Project was underway. And so uh, apparently this was quite the boondoggle, because what they were trying to do is have a 17 caliber flechette. Uh, incorporated into uh, a standard battle-line rifle. Uh, and they suspected that they would have the rifle standardized by 1966. However, the project started in 1962 for the SPIW, uh, went on until 1972, and was ultimately scrapped because it was crap. So, I tell you what, apparently all you had to do in the 60s was throw a rock and hit somebody who was trying to make a rifle for military use. <laughs> so, you know, in the early days before its adoption, the M16 had its twist rate evaluated. Um, it was an attempt to optimize the velocity uh, of the bullet according to its weight and length. Um, there was a critical recommendation to reject the chrome-plated bore uh, and the chamber. But, you know... I think a lot of people would say that that was a goofball call. Um, I mean, a lot of people thought that really, if you had had a, a chrome chamber and bore like the M14 had, you would have alleviated some of the M16's preliminary problems, uh, ease cleaning, prolonged life. But uh, there you go. <clears throat> um, and, you know, I think that a lot of people who <coughs> have looked at the in-country use of the uh, M16 during the Vietnam War um, recall some thoughts about how unreliable it was and the connection that was drawn between uh, the powder and the projectile uh, that was recommended and the powder and the uh, projectile that was ultimately utilized. It was the difference between a ball powder and a stick powder. And the problem was is that, you know, you're using the powder that in the M1 and the M14 had no problems because they were big beastly, robust firearms, and they didn't get gummed up. But then you put that really dirty, filthy powder in a rifle like the M16, and it doesn't do so hot. But, I mean, that's the contention. 
in any case, they decided to go back at some point, and that kind of disappeared. But um, it was right around this time, in 1963, that we began seeing the adoption and purchase of the rifles that the Air Force wanted. They got their 8,500, and another 19,000 were ordered. And within five years, they wanted 80,000. Uh, the Army only uh, had only 338 but had forecasted a need for a one-time purchase of 85000 for the Airborne, Air Mobile, and Special Forces in 1964. So that's really kind of about the time that it takes off. McNamara orders uh, or approves the purchase of these rifles in 63. They begin getting traction. They get past the uh, infantry boards, I guess, critical evaluation and obtuse review methodologies, and begin the adoption process. And that's, you know, really only a couple of years after that that we see these firearms going into Vietnam with the full-scale deployment of U.S. troops in more than just advisory capacities. So um, the Marines concluded after a test something that I thought was pretty interesting. They looked at the AR-15 and the M-14, and they said they were essentially equal in terms of training, reliability, and combat effectiveness. But the AR-15 was lighter easier to handle, and required less training. There was a complaint that no machine gun of the same caliber was available, and adoption was not recommended until such a weapon was available to replace the M60. But what they did note is that if you fired the M16, the troops were more accurate than if they fired the M14. Huh. And I thought that was interesting. Now, we're not talking full automatic fire. We're talking about semi-auto fire. But I think that was real interesting. They liked it because they could make more expert marksmen with that rifle than they could with the M14. So, let's see. Um, in 1963, the Army was de- designated the procurement agency for all users of the AR-15 and ammunition. And an AR-15 project office was established. And Colt would be the sole source contractor. So it was around this time that the Ford Assist was something that was incorporated into the rifle. Now, uh, it was requested by the Army and opposed by the Air Force. And the Marines and the Navy considered it non-essential. And this is where we see kind of a division in the Army-type classification of the M16. The M16 is what the Air Force used. It was designated the M16 and it had no forward assist. The M16A1 is what the Army used. And it did have a port assist, as the Army expectation required. So, one of the things to remember is that the M16 and the M16A1 are not... One is not the predecessor of the other. They were a parallel uh, series. And it starts with the XM16E1 as the predecessor to the M16A1, while the M16, adopted by the Air Force, went on its own development track. Now, here's something that the the guys who wrote this publication pointed out, that it is often incorrectly stated that the XM16E1 lacked the forward assist. Um, it did have the forward assist. It was the predecessor to the M16A1, which had it. So, the M16, up to that point, had really not had very many kind of exposure. There was not much exposure to the civilian world, but it was a movie called Seven Days in May that was released in 1964 uh, that was the first time many civilians saw the AR-15. Now, I don't know anything about that movie, J.D. Why don't you, can you look that up for me? Seven Days in May. I'll just kind of keep talking here. So it was not long before or after that movie that Colt received inquiries from civilians about whether the new rifle was available for commercial sale. So my understanding is it's right around this time that we start seeing the AR-15 as a civilian variant for commercial use. Now, huh. we're not talking in fully automatic one. I mean, although I'm sure you could buy one because we're pre-1968 Gun Control Mm -hmm. Act, and, of course, 1986 was not even close. But um, 
So, yeah, I think you could still buy a full a military version, you know, under the 34 Act. So, Seven Days in May, uh, released in 1964. Um Basically, it was kind of foreshadowing something that would happen 50 years later, almost. United States military leaders plot to overthrow the president because he supports a nuclear disarmament treaty, and they fear a so- secret Soviet Union attack. I may have fibbed a little bit on that foreshadowing, but that would be something Obama would do, right? Um, <laughs> uh, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas uh, in this one. Interesting. And how times have changed uh, wins four Oscar. What was it? It was nominated for two Oscars, one Academy Award, or uh, one Golden Globes. Um, yeah, it was, uh, man, even the Writers Guild of America said it was the best written American drama. You know how times have changed when they're endorsing that. Oh, yeah. All right. So the author goes in next to some of the design elements of the M16E1. So we're going to kind of switch switch tracks at this point. We've kind of gone through the the introduction of the M16 to, uh, I guess, full-scale adoption and the kind of beginnings, the entry point of manufacturing. Um, But the M16, XM16E1, as originally manufactured, um, was made out of 6061 aircraft-grade aluminum. The, compo- the components were anodized and phosphated, and the barrel and the bolt, uh, carrier, and other internal components were steel. The only component that rusted easily was the ejection port cover. Excuse me, that was a series of hiccups that I was trying not to make too loud. Hey, this is a live podcast that you listen to on demand. Don't apologize for life. <laughs> All right. Um, so... It had a fiberglass-reinforced plastic stock, a handguard, and pistol grip. Uh, they did not warp or splinter, and they further reduced the weight. The stock's fiberglass shell contained a rigid plastic foam core, but it did not have the trap door for putting in the cleaning kit. It was just a solid stock. Um, it was designed to be easily disassembled and repaired. had approximately 100 parts. The AK-47 had 130, and the M14 had just over 70. Uh, no special tools were required for field disassembly, and a bullet tip was used to adjust the front sight, rear sights, and the magazine release button. Um, it had a straight-line stock without the traditional curve uh, in the small of the stock and allowed the barrel, the bolt, and the carrier to reco- and the recoil buffer to be perfectly aligned horizontally. This eliminated the fulcrum created by traditional bent stocks to reduce muscle climb. You know, I think that it's kind of interesting that there is such a drive to find muzzle devices to eliminate muzzle climb and a design inherently lending itself to the elimination of muzzle climb. Don't you think that's interesting? It is. Because really, when you think about it, I think it's something that we've all contended on the show that most shooters don't have the skills to put the rifle through its paces for some time. And so perhaps seeking that magical, mysterious muzzle device isn't quite as valuable for most of us shooters than it is for, uh, like, a Jerry Mikulak or, uh, you know, any of the other greats in the three-gun community. You know what I'm saying? Are you telling me that my flaming pig isn't worth the money I spent on it? Yeah, pretty much. Gosh, man. In a roundabout. The... The thoughts and words of Reed on this podcast are not endorsed by anybody but himself. So here's another point that they make, that the uh, use of a small caliber cartridge with a light propellant charge and bullet further reduced muzzle climb and recoil and made the weapon more accurate at longer ranges than most period assault rifles, such as the AK-47. Huh. Interesting. So it originally had a three-pronged flash suppressor. And it served as a muscle compensator to slightly reduce recoil. Um, and it had a 21-millimeter uh, outside diameter, allowing NATO standard rifle grenades to be fired without the need for a separate grenade launcher. You know, it's a multi-use tool. You got a <laughs> grenade launcher and battle rifle. Excellent. Uh, I like it. Um, you could attach a simple ladder-type grenade sight to the front sight frame. And you were off to the races. Let's see. 
really not much of the remaining detail is anything that we wouldn't understand or notice on a modern rifle. Ejection port, front side bays, the gas system, handguards, all of it the same. Except for the one important element, which is that the M16 had the uh, giggle switch. Uh-huh. Uh, set it to auto, which, you know, I guess not many of us get to see these days. I, I was fortunate. I, I got to, well, not auto. I had, had three-round burst. I mean, that's because we like to shoot things really fast in the Marine Corps. So <laughs> decided to tire trigger fingers. Um, you know, in terms of the original XM-16E1, I think one of the things that I noticed is that the Ford Assist doesn't have the round plunger. It has the teardrop one. Um, and it does have the mag-release gate, that kind of raised fence around the mag-release uh, that I believe is basically there to prevent an accidental uh, depression of the, the release. But that fence was not on the early M16. Huh. You know, another thing that I think is interesting is that the original loadout for the M16 was supposed to be nine 20-round magazines. 20? Yep. But uh, they live in California? No, no. The the 30-round magazine wasn't really brought into, you know, wide-scale use until the mid-70s. I mean, when I when I went through, we were issued seven magazines. And that was three for each of our mag pouches and one for the rifle. And so... The uh, 920 round magazines was 180 rounds. Uh, we had 210. That was a standard loadout. Now, I'm not sure what it is today. Uh, and I'm sure we could find a listener who email us what the, the current loadout looks like today. But one of the things that they pointed out when it's early use is that in the utilization of the M16 in Vietnam by the Marine Corps, there was a shortage of magazines. Uh, some of these guys were issued an M16 and three magazine. Huh. Um, uh, apparently, the Marines were very vocal about their displeasure. And uh, by the end of the year, when they started receiving them, uh, they had more magazines than they knew what to do with. So somebody uh, heard their complaints and uh, rectified that situation. Um, that, they they did point out the reference to it being the, the Mattel toy rifle. But they reiterated the fact that it is a myth that any part of the M16 was ever manufactured by Mattel Toys. <laughs> so, in March of 1965, recruits undergoing airborne infantry training at Fort jo- uh, Fort Gordon in Georgia were the first training unit to receive the XM16E1s. Uh, in the early summer, Colt ran out of the recommended IMR powder-loaded ammunition. And M16, uh, XM16E1s could no longer pass acceptance tests. They didn't have the ammunition in the factory to test the rifle because they ran out of the powder that was recommended for it. So they had to halt production. Can you imagine that happening today? <laughs> Somebody be fired quick. Uh-huh. So, you know, you asked about the uh, 30 round magazine. It wasn't until 1965 that work began on a 30 round magazine. Uh, but it experienced many difficulties as the deep magwell required the upper end of the magazine to be straight and the lower to be curved. And in addition, the rifle's wells were irregularly dimensioned due to poor quality control. Interesting. Wasn't Colt the sole source provider? Quality control issues. Well, I do think that uh, it, it wasn't very long after that that they addressed that. But, um, you know... We hear that all the time today, and people just can't figure out how the hell it's possible that someone can have poor quality control. Uh, you know, anybody can have poor quality control. It just happened. Not because exactly. they want it to happen, because someone lets her, takes her eye off the ball. Somebody's too busy checking the vodka or the bourbon. I guess. But, you know, they, they kind of back into to line. So, um, late in 65, the... Uh, Small numbers, the M16s for the Air Force and the XM16E1s were ordered as replacements and issued to the Coast Guard, and the replaced rifles were given to Australia. Westmoreland, with the Marine Corps and Accord, requested 180,000 XM16E1s for 
both services, the Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, then 106,000 for the Arabian, 9,000 for the Koreans, and uh, Colt was told to double its production from 16,000 per month, or its production to 16,000 per month. All right. Well, JD tells me I'm getting to the minutia. I know it's boring. No, it's very, it's very interesting. I'm just getting to where we're the point of the show where we probably should say we're going to come back for round two. Oh, um, on the, on the, the history. Go. Yes, this this is like, we I, need to I, wrap I, it up. I thought JD was saying, shut up, you boring old dude. No, I've, I'm enjoying this. I just think we need to, we need to give a break. It's a lot of heavy stuff. All right. And All so, right. so we get into it. And so we give, we give kind of a break, a breather to, to go through. And, um, well, we've, we, we've got the first 10 years or so, 1954 yeah. to 1965. I think that's a good segue, don't you think? It is, and maybe we can get a loose rounds thrown into the middle of the. Maybe maybe I can see if I can get a couple guys on, and we can talk about some stuff, and then uh, we'll release these concurrently on uh, Monday releases. So, uh, well, you know you what? Get- I think that would be good because there's a bunch of stuff that really doesn't have to do so much with the history as it does busting some of the myths that we commonly see on the internet. Wait, the internet's false? No, the internet makes myths. Abraham Lincoln told me that everything I read on the internet is true. Yeah, I wouldn't trust the man that much. <laughs> so right. with that, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this one up, and we'll come back and we'll visit this in the part two. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you go to uh, you can send us an email ar fifteen podcast at gmail dot com or visit the website ar fifteen podcast dot com. That is where you can sign up. For the unbranded AR Builders Kit Dream Deluxe of a Lifetime giveaway, um, we are giving away the whole rifle in, in pieces. Uh, if you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash AR15podcast, you look there on the page, there is a picture of what is actually the whole rifle, all taken apart. Rocky uh, over at Unbranded AR, they had their photographer take a picture of it just all apart. It looks amazing. It's actually a good reference guide, too, for you to save. Uh, if you're building an AR or you're looking at the parts for an AR or you want to take it apart and show somebody, uh, it's a good reference, too. So you can sign up there, ar-15podcast.com, and uh, we will pick a winner on December 31st. I will call Reed. I will say this is our winner's name. I will. We will announce it on the following week. The uh, I think it's New Year's Day or the day after New Year's that release will come out. You will have two weeks. You will have two weeks from that show release to claim your prize. Uh, we did not get uh, the first winner of the C5 pistol. Uh, they they didn't call. They didn't write. They didn't send smoke signals. I didn't get a pizza with like a 20 in it. I got nothing. So we went 30 days, and we decided we'd pick another winner. So, Reed, that winner was contacted today. They reached out real quick. I'll bet they did. And um, they are pretty excited about it. And uh, kind of a, a cool little factoid here. Uh, out of the six, out of out of everybody who entered, there were six ladies. Number 117 is what the Google randomizer pulled out, and that was Julie. And uh, Julie is quite excited uh, to pick up that new Frontier Armory C5 pistol there that takes their uh, MP5 Max. So uh, congratulations, Julie. And uh, we will be giving away... This builder's kit at the end of December. Um, we're working with Aero Precision to do a rifle for uh, January and February. So we're going to keep the giveaways and stuff rolling. Uh, you can keep us rolling by supporting the show. Whether that's making a- Before you go on, I just want to make one point. What's that? I am not an elf. You are not. Oh. Okay. Now, for context, I got to share with you what was said. Um, Julie is quite excited. And. Okay, um, so you have to send your FFL info. You have to legally be able to pass a background check, all that good stuff. Uh, this is what uh, Julie said. This is sweet. We have never won anything like this before. Uh, it will be an awesome Christmas from Santa JD and his elf Reed. Uh, thanks to all you guys from New Frontier Armory. Awesome. So uh, apparently I am Santa. Ho, ho, ho. And uh, Reed is my elf. I'll take it. <laughs> he's speechless. So, uh, 
with that, Julie, congratulations. And uh, thank you guys for your support. Being able to support the show uh, helps us do giveaways and, and things like this. So you can give uh, one-time gifts through PayPal. You can also sign up to be a monthly supporter. Any amount makes a difference, guys. I'm telling you, sometimes sometimes it's going to the hardware store to buy duct tape or gaffers tape to, to tape things down. And it's just as simple as that. So your support is a huge encouragement. It helps keep the show rolling. So you can give by going to ar-15podcast.com. That's ar-15podcast.com. With that, we, represent, we wrap up episode one of the history of the M16 slash AR-15. And with that... Everybody have a great week. We're going to do the best we can to do that very same time. Take care. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.